You're listening to a sermon from Iron City Church. For unity, for diversity, for the city, and for the glory of God. Good evening. How we doing? I'm Justin. My name is Justin Carter. I'm one of the elders here at Iron City Church. It is good to see a lot of uh, unfamiliar faces, people that are coming in and, uh, and, and checking out the church. And so welcome, as Dustin said. Um, I, you know, typically I tend to speak longer than normal. So what I'm going to do is just go ahead and jump into this. So if you want to, go ahead and turn into uh, to Psalm 61. And you can follow along there. Psalm 61. And just kind of giving you the point so I don't have to keep going back to like, what's the main point? Or if I get off track or go somewhere else, this is the main point I'm going to tell you up front. Prayer, prayer, communication that moves. Prayer, communication that moves. If you're going to kind of summarize what Psalm 61 is, I'm going to kind of give you an introduction of what is going on. So you can kind of understand the, the backdrop, if you would, of this psalm. While there's no specific time, there's no specific situation or event at which this particular psalmist, most people do think that it's David, penned this psalm of, which most people think this is a psalm of lament. Some people actually call it a psalm of confidence or trust, um, just depending on who you're reading. At face value, though, at the very face value of this psalm, this psalm is about distance. It's about the problem of distance. It's a simply, very simple, when it comes down to the the problem, it is a geographical issue. The psalmist desires to be back in Jerusalem. He wants to be in the place which the presence of God dwelt among the people. You remember in the tabernacle, if you remember that language, or the tent of meeting. And because of this distance from Jerusalem, This psalmist, or let's just go ahead and call him David, was feeling spiritually distant from God. This feeling that David had, this longing to be back in Jerusalem, it represented this this being far away from God. He was longing to be in Jerusalem because he felt like God wasn't near. We can rightly assume if this is David, that the context around this psalm, this particular psalm, is around the rebellion of his son, Absalom. The whole story, this whole story about this problem, this issue to where David had to leave the the sanctuary, if you would, of Jerusalem, where the tent of meeting was, the reason he had to leave is laid out in uh, 2 Samuel 15 through 18. You can read it, but I'm going to give you kind of the highlight version. Absalom, impatient, to become king himself, gathers support and raises a rebellion against his father, David forcing him to flee Jerusalem. Now David, after fleeing Jerusalem, is emotionally torn between preserving the throne, preserving the throne of God in the place of Jerusalem, keeping the throne, or ultimately the life of his son. So he's, he's away from Jerusalem. 
David now is far away, maybe not literally the end of the earth is the way that he calls it, but at any distance from the presence of God is still distance all the same. Especially at that time, when, when God's presence was supposed to be dwelling in Jerusalem, distance was an important thing. If we look back in the places like 1 Kings 8, God chose Jerusalem to make his dwelling among his people. He chose that particular place. It was a place that one could go and could feel and know the sweet peace and comfort that comes, the confidence that comes with knowing that God is near. For the people of God, they knew Jerusalem was the place of peace, the place to be close to God for because, well, he would, you would walk out and you would go, there it is. God dwells there. God's presence is in that tent. God is with us. He is present. But David no longer has that ability. He's no longer in Jerusalem. The distance didn't keep him from praying. Isn't that fascinating? Do you ever think about that? Even throughout the Psalms, and we we talk so much about the presence of God being with his people um, during that time to where they're, you know, God is always in this tent of meeting, but yet David is always praying. We have a lot of Psalms, a lot of them attributed to David. David is always praying to God, even when it is at the end of the earth. It's not as if, guys, God is somehow confined only to the temple, to this place of tent, of this tent of meeting. David knew his God and he knew that his God could hear him. He knew that God would respond. And we'll see in just a bit our right response to knowing God is present and God's response should always be praise. We should never lack praising God. Ever. And we'll see how that plays out. If you flip and look at verses one and two, this kind of sets the situation. Again, David is far away from God. There's multiple layers of distance to this going on here. David is feeling far. So what does he do? He shouts. He yells, God, help. It's like if you see, you're on the, let's just say you're on the beach, you're on vacation and you see somebody at a distance, you know that it's far off, you, you, you know that that's them, but you know, instead of just whispering or talking regularly, what do you have to do if you want to get their attention? They're walking away from you or something. You've got to yell, you have to get their attention. You have to say, you know, they're there, you see them, but they're so far away. You have to yell. In this moment, David feels so far. He raises his voice and yells unto God. God, help. I know you're there. I feel like I'm at the end of the earth. My heart is faint, the scripture tells us. God, I need you. We hear a very similar plea also from David in Psalm 55. Give ear to my prayer, O God, and hide not yourself from my plea for mercy. Attend to me and answer me. I'm restless in my complaint and I moan. We've all been there, right? I mean, just, we've all been there. In some form or fashion, we've been in this place to where 
We feel far from God for those who walk with Jesus. We feel distant. We feel maybe this is a circumstance. We're in trouble. We're sick. We're burdened. We're fearful. And what do we do? We turn unto God. People, are, as they're on, the, their life is hanging in the balance. We most often, even if we're not Christians, we turn unto God as the last bit of, of salvation. Maybe, oh, maybe in this moment, God would save me. We cry out to God. We yell, God, help. If the heartbeat of your faith in God, even today, is faint, if you came in here with a faint heart, not just in trouble or fearful or whatever, maybe it's not a crazy circumstance, if you just walked in here and felt distance, even because of your comfortability, you know what you should do? God says to cry out to him. Even in this moment when you don't feel close, God says, no, come to me. Cry out to God and rest assured he can and does hear you. David cries out to God about the distance he's feeling and then rightly states what the solution to his current issue or problem is. What does he say? Lead me to the rock that is what? Higher than I. It's imagery. Can't you see it? It's it's him painting a picture. Yes, this is a song. Yes, it's something that can be sung. But in this moment, we see a picture of what's going on. You can illustrate it as something like a shipwreck. You've wrecked. There you are, floating in the middle of the ocean. In the midst of a storm, you're drowning. When right up after a wave comes and hits you in the face, you take in a lot of water, you come up and you see a lighthouse. A lighthouse that's sitting on the top of this very high and tall rock that it looks just to be impenetrable. It does not move with the raging of the seas. They keep hitting it back and forth, back and forth. It stays in place. It does not move. And you have this thought in your mind, if you could just somehow reach the top. You know, that place of safety, if you could just get to that top place to where it's dry, where you get up there out of the raging seas, God, get me to the top of that rock. But it was one thing to just see the lighthouse extended at the top, to see the light, to see the rock. It was another thing entirely to be able to reach the top without some sort of assistance. The rock walls around this, this lighthouse that sits on the top of this little patch of land, what happens is, is as the waves hit the sides, the walls kind of erode. And so what you do is you have this wall, you see this high, safe place, but you got this wall down here that you can't climb, that you can't get up. You're beat up by the seas. You get to that point and realize, man, if I could only just have some assistance to get up at the top. In some circumstances, though, in ancient times, they would cut steps into the rock. In these places to where the seas were, were terrible, they would cut these steps all the way down that just in case if somebody was shipwrecked, some, just in case somebody was just floating out to sea, that if they got to this point, somebody could come down and carry them up. Somebody could come down 
and carry them to the top. David is pleading for God to lead him back to the place high above the raging waters of life that is drowning him. For many of us, I, me, we have felt this experience. When we were first maybe led to Jesus, the first time that you experienced Christ, we were drowning in a sea of sin with no hope, and Jesus comes to us and saves us. Not something we did, not the works that we did, not what we got together. Jesus came to us in our mess as we were drowning in the water. He picks us up and he sets our feet upon a rock, upon a steady, a secure, a solid foundation. Many of us have experienced this same sort of experience, maybe not in salvation, but maybe it's been in the pain of life. You know, just living Everybody experienced that? Just the pain of living? If, if, you, if you haven't experienced that, you haven't lived long enough yet, but you will. There's, a, there's, there's something called the pain of life and that we experience that in death. We experience that in sickness. We experience that in persecution. We experience that in slander. We experience that in battling with sin. We, spend, we battle this with losing a job, feeling alone, depressed, oppressed, and, and literally all of these things. But it's also in the midst of those things that I hope that your gaze turned unto God. Just as David's did. His gaze didn't go on, how am I going to solve this issue of me being far away? No, he calls and cries out to God. He calls unto God. Psalm 18, 2 says this, the Lord is my rock and he is my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. We must understand this. And this is so funny because I was going to wait to get to the end. I'm just going to go ahead and read this up front. I was debating on saying this, but you all know this is coming. You're expecting it in your mind. And if you have never experienced this, this might be the first time that you've ever heard this. But let me just go ahead and tell you, the rock was made flesh. Jesus is your rock. He is that secure foundation. He is that place of safety. That's who Jesus is. The rock, Jesus Christ. It says in 1 Corinthians 10, 4, it says, and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And that spiritual rock was Jesus that safety that you're longing for, that, that, that peace and comfort that you're longing for is in Jesus, the rock. He tells all of us that have been shipwrecked, that have been stranded, that have been lost. He says, come to me all you who labor and are weary and heavy laden, and it says, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. First Peter 5 says this, cast all of your cares upon the Lord because he cares for you. See, the solution to David's situation was that God's presence would come near. 
doesn't matter where he was. You can see this all throughout Scripture when the, day, when the times that he's calling out. A lot of times, it's just he's asking God to come close. He's asking God to come near to him because he knows where God's presence is, there is peace, there is comfort, there is safety, there is security. Even if he's crying out at the end of the earth. If you look in Psalm 6, 3, as David is praying, he's continuing to pray. His mind turns away from the present, the present situation, and now goes to the past, if you see that transition. Now he's being reminded. David's reminding himself, or I would just say God is reminding him of all that he, God, has already done. You look at that phrase, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge in the shadow of your wings. One of the most beautiful things about Scripture or these kind of transitional words where it says, for you have been. For you have been. David is assessing the past. He's assessing his life up to this point. And he recalls all of these sweet memories, all of God's goodness and faithfulness to him. There are, give or take, 140 some odd places or chapters to where David is talked about in some way in the Bible. 140. What that should tell you, one, is he's one of the most written people about, I mean, not only did he add to the text, but he's also a part of a lot of it. You know that this man has experienced, one, he's experienced God. But all throughout scripture, we see him experiencing highs. He experiences lows. He experiences ups and downs, wins and losses. Chapter after chapter of stories about David almost losing his life, being in despair, counted out. He's drowning in his own sin, broken and afraid. It is through all of these times that we get to this place to where he is pinning Psalm 61. And he looks back as he is praying and he remembers, for you have been my refuge. You have been my strong tower. I want to ask you something. I want to ask myself something in this moment. Because honestly, I know this might be a selfish thing because I need to see this. I need to hear this. And I know people in this room need to hear this. If you in this room have in some way have been going through something You've been lost, you've been afraid, you had no hope, your faith was failing, you were broken. Maybe death was looming. Maybe, you know, life was falling apart. You were at the very end of your rope. You cried out to God and he answered. He, he answered. You prayed, he answered. You prayed, he answered. You prayed, he comforted. You prayed, he rescued. He, you prayed, he redeemed. You prayed, he saved. You prayed, and God became a refuge. I just want to do something. If you have specifically in your mind as I'm talking, and you have experienced God in that way as you've prayed, I, I want you to just stand up. If you've experienced God in that way as a testimony to what God has done, because honestly, I need it. 
I need to see that God is still moving. God is still doing things. God is still answering prayer. Now look around. People in this room have prayed specific things and God has showed up. Yes, God, you have showed up. You have been faithful. That is our response to what God is doing. God is doing and he is moving. He is doing things. He is changing us. He is healing. He is still on the move. God is saying, cry unto me. I hear you. I hear you. So many of you have experienced the goodness of God. To David, God's home was the tabernacle, this place where his glory dwelt. And so David, like, obviously longed to be back in that place in Jerusalem to worship the Lord. But it is in and through these memories, as he's thinking back, as he's giving test, testimony even to himself in that moment, as you guys just stood, he's given testimony for the work of God, the goodness and faithfulness that God has done. He goes from feeling alone and far away to giving this illustration as if he is in the tent of God's dwelling. He goes from being at the end of the earth to now giving this representation that he is genuinely standing in the holy of holies where only the high priest can go. That is how close God had come. He cried out that God would come close. And God came close. He came close. Psalm 61.4, let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. David, who was at one point at the end of his earth, now is using this phrase, that's it's shelter of his wings, which in that, in that text should remind us and would remind people of this place, this, this representation of the cherubim. There's, a, there's literally wings over the cherubim on the mercy seat that covered the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. So in the most holiest place to the people of God at that time, to where people couldn't go in, you just couldn't just walk around. It's like, God's in here. I'm just gonna come and hang out. No, you'd be, you would die. That doesn't, it doesn't work like that at that time. God was too holy. He was other than. We were full of sin and needed sacrifice. We couldn't do that, but yet he is giving us this illustration that he, David, is now, God has come so close that he has experienced God in such close quarters that it is like standing in the holy of holies where the most holy peace of God, his presence, is dwelling He's saying that he is abiding in the Lord in that way. He's taking refuge in that way. God came close. You see, it's in this place that David decides to pause. If you look at the text, what does it say? It says, Selah. Some people call that a break in music, right? It's a break in music. It's also a pause. And you might even call it a rest. What a what a convenient time to rest in the presence of God. What a convenient time within a song to go from talking about being in the holy of holies, I'm as close as possible to God, I'm just gonna 
just going to stop and I'm just going to stay here for a little while. Have you been there? Have you experienced God in that way, this supernatural way? Maybe you know people, right? Think of some people right now that you've experienced in your life that have supernatural strength. They've experienced supernatural peace, supernatural assurance. They have supernatural confidence. I'm not talking about some, you know, just generally optimistic dude who just says, oh, you know, it's going to work out. I'm talking about things are going wrong. And this person, whoever this person is, is still saying God's got this. I don't know how he's going to work it out. I don't know how he's going to be good, but God's got this. There's people in my life, even right now, I'm thinking, man, if I was in their shoes, I'd be like doubting God left and right. But yet their faith is encouraging my faith. Their faith and trust in God is driving me to praise and believe more and to trust God more. Have you seen, have you experienced a person who knows the Lord is this? Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Matthew 14, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give it to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. Philippians 4, 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It is out of the Selah. It is out of the pause. It is out of the break. It is out of the rest. It is out of this time with God that now David expresses. His expressions go from pleading to now giving confidence. His language changes. He goes from asking and begging. I'm at the end of the earth. Now he's saying things in confidence. Psalm 61.5, for you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. After remembering and after meditating on all the the Lord has done in the past, so he's thinking about all these things, the psalmist now expresses his confidence in the present situation and ultimately the hope for the future because it's futuristic as well. Yes, present, but it also has ramifications for the future. Verse 5a, David is projecting now facts versus the pleas back in verse 1. God will respond. God will be good. He will see me through. Without getting into this intense back and forth, I want to cover the word vow. Instead of me getting in this like back and forth between what this word means, I'm just going to lay out what Mr. Spurgeon says right here. And I think this is a beautiful way to summarize what this word means in this particular text. Vows may rightly be joined with prayers when they are lawful, well-considered, and truly for God's glory. It is great mercy on God's part to take any notice of the vows and promises of such faithless and deceitful creatures as we are. What we promise him is his due already. And yet he deems to accept our vows as if we were not so much as servants as his free suitors who could simply just do what they want to give or withhold as we please. You see, it's truly extraordinary that the thought that our prayers, your prayers, my prayers, not only move us because they do move us, but they can and will and move God, the almighty God. The vow here that he is offering unto God, 
for saving him, for coming close, for sustaining him. You know what the simple vow is? Praising him. You might've thought it was gonna be a hard thing. It is hard sometimes, but this is what God is saying. Hey, what is the, what is the vow that David is making? What is the promise he's saying? Is like, if you come close, I will praise. If you do this, I will praise. It's not, a, he's not, it's like a fortune cookie. God is not, he's not using God like that. He's saying, hey, if you do this, I'm gonna praise you. If you do this, I'm gonna sing your praises for the rest of my life, forever, eternally sing your praises, oh God. You have heard my vows and you have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. This statement for David would take him back to the covenant promises. Back in 2 Samuel 7, 8, where God promises that David would rule, that he would essentially, that God would make his name great, that God would use him to establish a kingdom and that kingdom would live on forever, that God would use his lineage and his descendants. God would bless David. This situation, this time would remind him of these things. It would remind him that um, God is going to bring peace to Israel. It's gonna remind David that he's gonna bring rest to Israel. And it is out of those promises now that he goes to this place of these, these really petitions, these prolong the life of the king, make his years endure for all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to guide him. Yes, that language is in some ways is temporal. It's, it's David is saying, in view of the promises you've made, God, continue to see this through. The promises you have made, God, see these through. Keep your steadfast love and faithfulness. May our lineage, may the descendants, my descendants, may we, be, may we, may we prosper. May this whole thing continue. But there's also eternal ramifications. There is a, an eternal lean to this text. it leans in the direction of the Messiah, the true descendant, the, the true king, the greatest descendant, the Messiah. What David only had a glimpse of, we've now seen and have tasted in part. And I'll explain as the worship team comes. One day we will know this idea in full but what we know now is this. David only had a glimpse. We know Jesus Christ as the Messiah. We know this eternal descendant, this person that would come and, and save the people of God. David only had a glimpse. We know this person's name and his name is Jesus. And he has come, steadfast love and faithfulness most certainly guided him to this point. Most guided, guided us all. We, we have hope in a future because of the name of Jesus. Jesus the Messiah, the Messiah came down and he gave his life so that all who call upon him might be saved. He's right now in this very moment if we can understand, we can't understand God's time, but in our moment, in our context, in this moment, God is sitting right there and Jesus is sitting right there beside him. 
In this idea, this Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the line the where Jesus, the seat that Jesus is sitting in is at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is in the place that he is supposed to be in. He's in the place of eternal reign. He is king. He is the rock. He is over all things. In Christ, we have our rock. In Christ, we have our solid foundation. In Christ and because of Christ, we now inherit through Jesus the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. The temple now becomes living inside of you. You're no longer having to look for this geographical location to where God dwells. No, in Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, that person, that being lives inside of you. That spirit is in you. You're at the end of the earth and you, have, and you, you are a follower of Jesus. Cry out to Jesus. Cry unto Jesus because he is near. He is living with you, in you. John 1, 12 says this. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You see, in Christ, we too, as David had, a promised heritage. You have a promised heritage. You have a reason to glory. You have a reason to be reminded that God's promises will come to fruition. You have a reason for the goodness to say that God will be good. No matter my circumstance on earth, God will be good because the work has already been done for you. Your inheritance has been laid out. It is in stone. Spurgeon says this, thou hast given me two the heritage of those that fear thy name. We are made heirs, joint heirs with all the saints, all the partakers of the same portion. With this, we ought to be delighted. If we suffer, it is the heritage of the saints. If we are persecuted or in poverty or in temptation, all this is contained in the title deeds of the heritage of the chosen. Those we are to sup with may well be content to dine with. We have the same inheritance as the firstborn himself. What is more conceivable? What is better? Saints are described as fearing the name of God. They are reverent worshipers. They stand in awe of the Lord's authority. They are afraid of offending him. They feel their own nothingness in the sight of the infinite one to share with such men, to be treated by God with the same favor as he meets out to them is a matter for us, endless thanksgiving. Endless thanksgiving, endless praise. All the privileges of all the saints are also the privileges that have been extended to us, have been extended to you, to me. You see, in Jesus, in crying out to Jesus, in calling out to Jesus, what you do in that, that exchange, you're inheriting the privileges to be called sons and daughters of the King. 
You exchange the, ro- the, the, the clothes, the nasty clothes, the brokenness, all the things, no hope, and you've exchanged it with hope. You are, you are now privileged sons and daughters of the king. That calls for endless thanksgiving. You had no hope, now you have hope. You were broken, now you're healed. Endless thanksgiving. So he moves to Psalm 61a. So I will forever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day, every day. I will sing praises unto thy name forever. You see, because my prayer is answered, my song, this song, this idea of praise shall be perpetual. It should be over and over. I pray, I extend myself, I call out to God, I worship. It should be perpetual because Jesus forever sits at the right hand of God. Because of Christ, our prayers can be acceptable unto God because I am preserved. We are saved in him. I will forever be grateful with such a gift that has already been given to us in Christ. We ought not only leap in prayer, as Spurgeon says, and also limp in praise. No, we should be heavy in praise. Even in the midst of broken circumstances. Even in the midst of not knowing the outcome, we should be heavy on the praise side, not limping in praise. We should be longing to jump, come together to praise the name of God, to do what we just did a second ago and testify to the Lord's goodness. That's what we should be longing for, that God has been good and he will see us through. His promises will remain. We have an internal inheritance, one in which one day we will know in full. We will be in the presence of God. There will be no more tears. There'll be no more sickness, no more death, no more sin, and no more distance. No more distance. If you've ever been close to God, you know what that feeling is like. You know what it's like to be close to who God is, to not want to leave, to want to say, Selah, I'm just going to stay here. But unfortunately, we live in a broken world, and sometimes there is distance. In that moment, when we are standing in the presence of Jesus, there will be no more distance. King Jesus will reign, and we will be as he is in his presence forever. Let's pray. God, we thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for the ability to pray and know that you hear us through and by Jesus. Your son, Jesus. Jesus, you sit at the right hand of the Father, and you hear every single word that we speak. God, blot out the thought that you don't hear us. Kill the enemy that surrounds us, that tells us that God doesn't want to hear, that God doesn't, in, doesn't care, that God is in some way upset at us because of our sin, that he, we should be shamed. We should be separated from God. Blot that out in our minds, God, and I pray that you draw us to your presence. And may we do what's rightful in that moment. May we celebrate, may we worship, may we praise and be reminded, be reminded that when we pray, you hear. When we pray, you do move and can move. And when we pray, we move. May our bones be filled with shouts of joy. 
knowing that we know the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.